Good morning, everybody. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Um, but before we really get into chapter 2, we're going to look back at chapter 1 a little bit. That's because when you, when you go to Philippians chapter 2, um, what's the first word you see in chapter 2? What was that? So. Uh, and so is a lot like therefore. You have to look backwards to understand because so is implying that there's something that has been said or done and as a result, another thing needs to be done. So, so we got to look back a little bit. So last week we looked at 27 through 30 a little bit quickly. Um, and that's really where I think the so here is referring back to. So I'll just read that real quick. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am, a, or am absent, I may, hear of, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. To, to me, the tone of this section kind of turns on one word. And that one word is granted. At least that in, in, in the ESV, it's, it's granted. Um, where he says, um, for it has been granted to you that you should not only believe in him, but suffer also for his sake. Um, I, I would normally expect in a section about suffering, especially if I was writing it, <laughs> That it would say something like, you must suffer for his sake. You have to suffer for his sake. You're required to suffer for his sake. But instead, this passage uses the word granted. What does granted imply? It's a gift. It's, it's something that you are given as though it's a privilege to receive it. That's a much different concept than I have to suffer for his sake. It, would know, it wouldn't be any less true in some ways to say that we have to suffer for his sake. That we're required to suffer in order to um, be glorified like he is glorified. But instead, the word granted is used. And so looking at um, suffering as a gift is much different than looking at suffering as a, I only endure this because I'm required to. Um, can you all think of passages outside of Philippians that we have actually studied in the last year and a half, there's a few, that would reiterate this point, that would echo the idea that suffering is something that we should view as a gift or be thankful for? Yeah, so James 1, 2 through 4, it says, you know, trials are the testing of your faith. That produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have, when it has its full effect, um, will make you perfect and complete. Great, that's one. Um, what about Romans? Anybody have any thoughts about where Romans might say something similar? Barry? Chapter 5, yeah. 
So if you go look in Romans 5, there's this, you know, it starts with a, if something happens, then this, then this, then this, then this. So you should rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and as a result, we should ha not be ashamed because God has poured his love into us. We can rejoice in suffering because as we gain endurance, it produces many things. The, the production of those things is because God pours his love in us. I think you could also look at 1 Peter 1, 6-8, where, where Peter tells us that um, suffering tests our faith and determines the genuineness of it. Uh, some of your versions likely say refined or refined with fire. Uh, it talks about gold. So it's this idea of purification, that suffering purifies our faith, tests its genuineness. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't twist this, right? We shouldn't take this idea of suffering and say that it is not a burden. Suffering is a burden. Um, it is painful. And when we're, when we're talking to other people about suffering, we shouldn't, you know, well, the, you know, God's doing this to strengthen you. I, I would not encourage that to be the, I would encourage you not to start there when you're trying to encourage someone who's suffering. But instead to think about these passages and what they tell us that suffering is for. And how can we, how can we talk to others that are suffering or ourselves especially on the concept that God pours his love into us and that is what gives us all of these things. And that we should see part of our role when others are suffering to be the agent of pouring God's love into those that are suffering amongst us. Um, the, the beauty of our situation, the situation of believers, as opposed to the situation of non-believers is that suffering isn't only a burden. It's also an opportunity. And it's an opportunity for God to pour his love, for others to pour their love into us, to perfect us, and to prove or disprove the genuineness of our faith. Any comments before we go into chapter 2 a little bit? Okay. Um, we're going to focus on chapter 2, 1 through 11, so I'm going to read that. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but... In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think this section, these 11 verses, break down pretty neatly into three subsections. Um, some of your versions may actually construct it that way. Um, for example, mine does not. I'm using the ESV this morning. If you're using, I think the workbooks do break it down separately. Um, if everybody just take a minute and take note of what those sections are. Um, and the question I'll ask you is, just at a high level, can you think of like a summary, like a one-sentence summary or purpose for each of those sections? So you, so you might have to look for them and then kind of determine what they are. We'll take a minute. Uh, to give you, you guys a minute to look at that. All right, so first, let's just all get clear on potentially what the three subsections are. And I, I get that, like, some of this is me. So you're like, I don't know, Adam, what you think. So good, good luck. Yeah. Um, so um, what do you all think the first section is in these verses? Yeah, I think it's one through four. I think one through four is called the first subsection. Um, did anybody write down kind of what they think one through four is? What's its purpose? Uh, a sentence or two? I'm sorry? All right, so Paul's instruction is to put others before yourself. I would have a, I would start with a more general statement of what this section is about, and that's that Paul is giving direction to the Philippians. Um, putting others before yourself is part of that direction that he gives, um, but he's giving direction to the church. All right, what, what do you all think the, the second section is? What'd you say? Yeah, five through eight. You might say five through nine. I kind of think it's five through eight myself, but it could be five through nine. Um, and what is that section about? What you say, Brian? All right, so it tells us about Jesus humbling himself. And I would say maybe a way to, to note that section is we're given an example of what that humility is from the first four of your verses. So Paul directs the church. Most of that direction is towards humility and sacrifice for others. And then he gives an example of Christ for us to look to. And then what's the third section? It should be really easy. Only read through 11. Great job, Alan. It's 9 through 11. He's really paying attention. I appreciate that. Um, so what is this section? What's 9 through 11? telling us? Or, or what, what is its purpose? The results of that direction. Yes. So now the results of that direction, but, but to be clear, in some ways this is kind of a continuation of the example of Christ. So uh, direction to the church, an example of what the church should do in Christ, and then the results in Christ's life of what that meant, life and death, really, of what that meant and what the result was. And it meant for the church. Yeah, so ultimately, we have to then kind of say, well, what does that mean for the church, and then what's that mean for us? All right, so that's the high level. Let's go back to one through four. Um, 
there's a couple things that they're being directed to do. Um, uh, one of those we've already called out that they should be humble. Um, what else are they told that they need to do? All right, so be united. And what's the, what are the specific words that Paul uses, Melissa? Yes. So he talks about sameness. Same mind and same love. I think that's an important thing for us to consider. Sometimes when we, um, I don't know if you've ever been subjected to sermons on unity. Um, I always find it interesting that most often I've heard sermons on unity in congregations that are having issues not being united. Um, you know, that, that's kind of, it's like telling people they need to achieve the end, but it doesn't actually tell them how to achieve, how, the means by which to get there. Being united, uh, you can't just, well, you just guys, just be united, Jerry, Alan, you guys just be united. Well, he tells us here actually how you can be united. You need to have the same mind. What do you think that means? Because we all have to think exactly the same. I hope not. That'd be awful. So what does it mean then? If, if it doesn't mean, well, we all agree on everything, what would the same mind mean? Julie? Yeah, so Julie's kind of bringing in that this is a, an idea of maybe attitude. Um, I think we have same mind and same love because I think same love is easy. So what's same love? Mark. Uh, same love for the Father. As, uh, when I think of same mind, I think of same purpose, same goal, same uh, what we're reaching for. Yes, so same love is talking about love of Christ. I think you could also point to um, you know, the first couple of verses in chapter 1 when he talks about their partnership in the gospel. Love of Christ, love of the gospel. I think those are in love for the Father. That's the same love idea. I think the same mind, this may sound a little funny, but all of us have a mind. And, and really what our mind does is it's, it's a tool that filters information and then generates decisions. And if we're of the same mind, we filter information similarly and we make resulting decisions similarly. It's not all going to be the same, but if, if we have the mind of God, if it's informed by God's word, most likely our minds are going to filter information in a similar way. And for the most part, we should come up with similar answers if we've all started with using the Bible as the way, the Word of God as the way to form that engine, that machine, our brain, that filters and uh, sorts information. Same mind, same love. That's how you achieve unity. All right, what else, what else in this section are, are they told to have or to be? <laughs> Yeah, all right. So do nothing from selfish ambition. If we're focused on doing things for God, for our love for him, and we're making decisions with that same mind, 
Well, most likely, that should mean that we aren't doing things from selfish ambition, but instead, what are we doing? It's in the, it's in the verse. I'm not, it's not your question. Just look at the last half of the verse. Count others more than yourself. Um, I, I think this is a really... It's a, it's a very straightforward statement that... that is hard to implement because it is counter to the natural idea of men, of what we do. And it is especially counter to most of the world's thoughts. That we're going to not look to our own interests. To be clear, he says, not only. So that does imply you can look to your own interests some, to be clear. That's what the Bible Yeah. Not, not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others. And if you couple that with the verse preceding that ended with, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So if we can consider our own interests, but we're told to count others as more significant than ourselves and to look to the interests of others, what does that imply about that mind that we have, that machine, that is sorting information and generating decisions? What should be an overriding aspect of our decision-making criteria? When we make decisions, when our mind considers something, what does this tell us we should do? It's here. Be like Christ. Yeah, be like Christ, but what's it, but what's it saying we should do? What does that imply? If you say, be like Christ, I agree. To serve others, and what does that mean about our decisions? Yes, so we're going to put a higher value or weight on what others need than what we do. Crystal said, I heard out of this ear, sacrifice was the way she said that, right? And so when I talk about the mind as this machine that is sorting information and then making decisions, all of us are used to like having a priority order for things, right? When you, when you get up in the morning, your priority order for most of us is number one, I have to go to the bathroom. Like before I do anything else, I have a priority order, have to go to the bathroom. And then some people are going to take a shower, some people are going to eat breakfast, do whatever. But each of us has the priority order for what we want to do. Um, and for me, that's I want to shower and then I want to eat breakfast. I don't, want to, I don't really like it when I do it in the other order. That's not my, my personal priority. But in all of our lives, we prioritize and that's how we decide what we're going to do first, middle, and last. Some of that priority is imposed on us. You know, if you have children, they have needs, uh, they can't feed themselves. Well, sometimes the priority is going to come that you feed the kids before you feed yourself, right? Um, and so outside forces, we're used to helping us make those decisions and priorities. This is telling us that when I have a set of decisions in front of me, and one of those is to my benefit, to be clear, it says you should look to your interests, not only to your interests, but to your interests, but then something else is to others' benefit. As I weight those things, I should lean towards doing things that are good for others. Um, so, so he gives us that instruction to the church, is what Paul has given, and now he provides an example. So let's, let's talk about what Christ did here uh, and his example of humility. 
What do you all notice in these uh, three or four verses, five through eight? Christ empties himself, takes on the form of man, takes on flesh, and in that he forgoes many of the privileges, really all of them, that he has as God. Um, if he didn't, they wouldn't have been able to kill him. Right? Just fundamentally, if, even if you think he, you know, he did miracles and maybe some of those benefited him every now and then, I don't really think they did, but even if that is true, fundamentally, Jesus could not have died if he had not emptied himself of his godhood because God is eternal. So he had to remove that from himself. All right? So he emptied himself, um, gave up his rights, and so then what did he, what is he because he did that? What did he become? Flesh. All right? So that's one thing. He became flesh. Chip? Servant. He became a servant. <laughs> yeah, so the one who ruled all who in, in Hebrews 1, we're told, um, holds the entire universe together by the power of simply his word. He emptied himself and became a servant. And so when we think about for ourselves, what, what does it mean when we're starting to put others before ourselves? Well, when God did that, he gave up his godhood, became a servant, and allowed himself to die. Anything else here that you see we should comment on? Look. Yeah, so Paul kind of emulated that idea. Yeah, in, in Romans when Paul says that he, um, his, he would sacrifice himself, cut himself off so that others could, could win uh, the crown. That's the same idea in, in chapter 1 here as well um, when Paul talks about that he is going to essentially is willing to sacrifice time with God to serve them. Jerry, you going to say something? No. Anything else before we go on to the next section? Julie? Yes. So, uh, if you couldn't hear Julie's comment, she referred us back to 1 and 2 uh, of chapter 2, where Paul gives this list of things. He says, if there is any um, encouragement, comfort, um, love, participation, affection, or sympathy, all of those things, then he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, by being united. Um, and so, the idea being that all of those things are precursors to being united, or really are precursors potentially, I would say, especially of being of the same mind. And being of the same mind and the same love is what leads us to, to unity. Um, but I, I will like pick on the, the language a bit. So if, what do y'all think about that if in verse one? What you say? Yeah, I think it's rhetorical. 
Because, like, if you if we just said, hey, guys, is there any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any participation, any affection, any sympathy? Do those things exist in Christ? Do we question if they exist? I don't know. Like, maybe they'll show up one day, I hope. I, I don't think so. That wouldn't make sense with other things that Paul tells us. And so I think this if is rhetorical, almost highlighting how silly it is to not have those things be of the same mind and the the same love towards unity. That there's no reasonable response to the gospel besides being united and of the same mind and the same love. All right, let's look at the next set of verses, 9 through 11. So I would say this is, when I wrote my notes, I characterized this as the result of humility or the result of Christ's humility. And what is that? Yeah, so God exalts him above everything. And what happens because of that? Al? Yeah, God is glorified. Um, and there's, some, there's, a, there's a little concept in the middle of that, that God exalts Christ, and then every knee bows to him, uh, to Christ, implying that he is what? He's king. He is powerful. He is mighty. And as a result of that, God is glorified. So, um, if we're going to like bring these verses all together, we've talked about them in sub- subsections, but if we now think about 1 through 11, what is Paul telling them? What is the purpose of this example and then this commentary about the result of humility? frame up question poorly. Um, so he gives, he tells them to be of one mind, direction to the church, one mind, one love, be united. He then gives this example of what Christ did in being humble, and when he tells them to be humble, now you see Christ's example. And then he gives us, he tells us the results of that for Christ. Well, we're not Christ. So it's like, why, why connect these things together? Kelly? Um, when, so um, we have things that we are entitled to as well, you could say, as, as being image bearers of God. But we still have to lay that down. Um, and when we do, we are exalted. Yes, that's great. So we are image bearers of God. We're being called with the example of Christ. Humble yourselves. And if you want to understand how much you need to humble yourself, look at Christ. That's the gauge. Christ went from all-powerful in heaven, the world is held together by the power of his word, to a servant who allows himself to be killed. Like, that's the magnitude. So when you think about how much you're supposed to sacrifice or change or be humbled, that's the, that's the magnitude by which Christ was humbled. That's, so that's how you judge how much you should be humbled. Which, what, what does that mean? 
There's no comparison. So like, it's almost like hyperbole. The example of Christ is so extreme that none of us can say, well, like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't humble myself that far. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that job. I'm too important for that. Um, nope. Christ went from the king of all to servant who dies. And so that's how, that's how much we should be willing to sacrifice and humble ourselves in service to God, but also really clearly the concept here is service to each other, right? Because that's what he talks about, the fact that you're putting others' needs more than yourself. And that's why Christ, that's why Christ humbled himself was so that we could be saved. All right, so then he's glorified. Then we're glorified. So this process of humbling ourselves is what allows us to be glorified by God. Barry? That functionality of this too, connecting back to chapter 1, verse 27, well, is also sweet. But we're already going to do That's the next thing I'm going to do. Never mind. Don't ever hear it again. Yeah, just pause that. Barry's going to have a great comment in just a minute. Yeah, so um, I, I think, and we'll just go there now. All right, so, um, so Paul's goal in writing all of this is, one, he says he wants them to complete his joy. Um, and then, two, he wants them to be united, um, to be of the same mind and spirit and service. So if we go back to that so that's at, in, at the beginning of chapter 2, and that connects us back to verse 27, like Barry was taking us. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, not frightened. So I think I posed the question last week, what does it mean to be worthy of the gospel and the calling? Is it time for you to make your comment now, Barry? Okay. It would fit, I think. Um, and so... And pointing back to verse 27, what we see is um, he gives us the answer. When he tells us to let your life be worthy of the gospel. A concept that we should really recognize as not being possible in a way. We can't earn the gospel, so being worthy of it is kind of the same idea. So thankfully, he tells us what we have to do to be worthy of the gospel. And that is we have to be like Christ. We have to humble ourselves completely, putting the needs of others above ourselves. What else? Barry? Yeah, that'd be great. I think Barry has a comment on this. Just, just one other thing. Backing up even a little bit more. Uh, and looking at the functionality of it for what he's asking us to do. To stand side by side we're going to need this kind of attitude, we need this kind of self-sacrifice if we're going to together really deal with the suffering that's come, that, that comes upon us and the persecution that we need to stand side by side. We, we have to establish that foundation prior to the time the suffering is going to hit if we're going to endure the suffering. We can't go, okay, now that we're suffering, I'm still here. Uh, it, it's got to be uh, a part of our culture. Yes, so if you didn't hear Barry, the, the idea here is he's giving, so, so in the context of uh, the end of chapter 1, what's, what's the issue they're facing? 
What are they dealing with? They're dealing with persecution. And so uh, he's, he's giving them the keys to understanding how they can survive and endure persecution. That per, when persecution and trials come, well, how do you handle that? So, and then he gives us these details of how, how you can be prepared to handle that. And it is being united with the same mind and the same love because when the persecution comes, what's the goal of Satan in that persecution? To divide us. Satan wins when we begin fighting with each other and so we stop doing anything else. We stop doing anything related to, to being gospel teachers in the world and instead we fight amongst ourselves because we don't have the same mind or the same love. And if we don't have the same mind and the same love and we bicker amongst each other, what's going to happen? That division will, will force us to focus so much on each other and the fight with other people of God that Satan has kind of free reign to do what he wants to do elsewhere. You don't have to apologize. During COVID, there were a number of churches that had huge divisions over the And the only way I can explain it is you weren't prepared. You didn't have the same mind, the same day, sacrificial love that you should have. That shouldn't happen. Yeah, so um, COVID did highlight where congregations and groups weren't aligned, where they didn't have trust in their leaders, and their leaders perhaps didn't listen to the people. And Satan used that to tear groups apart. Um, used it to tell people they couldn't worship in public. Um, something that in the U.S., I think if, if a law had just been passed, well, you can't, you can't meet in public, Christians everywhere would have risen up and been amazingly unhappy and would have not listened to that law. We would have. We would have. But because it then got couched in something else, we folded. Um, and, and that, I think, is something in my lifetime that will be formative in considering how do we as a group respond to um, the government telling us we can't meet as a group. Um, very much so. All right, so... Go ahead, Chip. Uh, I know you're going to move on, but I wanted to connect verse 27 of chapter 1. Um, and maybe, well, yeah, verse 27 where it talks about being worthy of the gospel. I think we always talk about being worthy of the gospel as something that we will do to make ourselves worthy of the gospel. I, I think the worthiness is actually the gospel. Mm. It's such a great gospel. It is such a phenomenal message. It's the greatest message of mankind of all time. What Jesus did in this example in chapter 2. So, so I think the point is, treat your lives and make your decisions about the way you are interacting with other people and the decisions you make in life about your priorities, about the worthiness of that gospel. It is such a great message. Why would you not make all of your decisions first about how do I how do I live my life that shows, that glorifies God in a way that shows how awesome this message is? It is so worthy of whatever I need to do. Um, and then, I just want to close. In that verse 27, he says, Whether I come to see you or remain in the house, I will hear things about you. The very next verse we're going to hear in verse 12 is he says, So then, the smallest way 
I agree completely. And, and I think that that's actually the connection of living your life worthy of the gospel is not living righteously enough to earn the gospel. I think he's telling us in, in chapter 2 that the first step to being worthy of the gospel is humbling ourselves. Because until we humble ourselves, we think we're pretty great. <laughs> If, if I'm not humble, I don't, I don't need the gospel is, is my perception. If I believe that I can either live well enough that I can get to heaven on my own, or I just don't care about heaven, one of those two, until I humble myself enough to realize that I need the gospel, that I can't earn heaven, well, I can't be worthy of the gospel until I'm humble enough to accept it. I think that's part of the discussion of humility here and why it's so important is that for, for us to have the gospel, Christ had to humble himself enough to go from king to servant to death. We have to humble ourselves enough to go from thinking that we are good enough or fine or we don't need that, humbling ourselves to, I can't save myself, I need Christ, and then we die and we're resurrected. Were you going to say something, Julie? No, we are not going to 14 days. Not my plan. Unless just, I mean, we can we can talk about it. I'm not going to like say no. Yes. Yes, the gospel makes us worthy. In that, in that concept. So my question, uh, go ahead, Luke. Yes, so, so the ways that we can know who God is um, so Lou's referencing back to um, in the Old Testament when, when God has to show his power and who he is. Um, here we also have another example of we see who God is by the fact that Christ humbled himself to die so that we could have the gospel. Did I say that right? He's a kind of... Kristen. Yeah, so Crystal connected this to Acts 4. The brethren of all of one heart and mind, and uh, they share their possessions equally among each other. In contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, who they were not humble enough to just tell the truth. They wanted the perception to be that they gave all. So they lied. Uh, their lack of humility led them to give because they wanted other people to see them. And that didn't work out very well. And so how do we, the, the question I want us to maybe consider 
um, on an application sort of concept is how do we do this? Like how do we um, put others' needs ahead of our own in, in this way that it's comparable to what Christ did? What does that look like in our life? David Lee? The rich young ruler comes to mind. Say again? The rich young ruler comes to mind where it's just, it, I imagine it'd be hard to do what you're describing if you have so much in this life where it's considered like you're constantly thinking about all the things that you're going to have to give up to do what you know you should do. So living in such a way that that's the non-issue for you. All right, so the rich young ruler is David Lee's example of um, he was unwilling to give up what he had to put the put others' needs before himself and, and really to even put, not even talking about others, he wasn't willing to give up all he had to put his salvation first. Not even others at that point. Like he wouldn't even, he wouldn't even give up everything for himself, if that makes sense. He wouldn't give up everything for his own salvation. That, that's how conceited he was. Mark? Someone to answer your question this with partnership in the gospel, um, I want to pull on that thread a little bit more, Micah, and, and just ask pointedly, what does that mean we will do? Not generally, like generally you said we would participate in the gospel, we would be humble, we would do some of those things. Let's talk about specifically, how will we live? What are you going to say, Crystal? We have to have a choice, we have to choose the thing that makes us most uncomfortable. So choosing the thing that makes us most uncomfortable or or even choosing not to be comfortable. What does that look like? What's that look like for you? It, it looks like serving and not what we want to do. Um, yes. So allow yourself to suffer, to choose suffering in order to serve others or choose a lack of comfort because it is beneficial to others. Um, that looks like giving people money potentially and it meaning that your family 
isn't starving. You have to still consider the interests of your family, but maybe you're not eating the same things you would normally because you shared. It, it looks like when someone says, I need X, you say, well, I, I was planning to do something. I had, I had plans. We were going to do something as a family. So you need to go do that as a family. You need to go do that service as a family, potentially. That's not the thing that you want. If, if we are serving one another and, and combining that with the partnership of the gospel that Micah mentioned, we will forever look at things through the lens of, are my choices to satisfy me or are they to satisfy the gospel? And that cannot, it will not look the same as, well, we were busy tonight, so we couldn't go help so-and-so. We were busy, we have things to do, so we can't be involved in this work. Sacrificing ourselves like Christ sacrificed means that we are living lives that aren't comfortable. It's not always going to be fun. And I think we sometimes put things through that lens of like, well, I don't enjoy doing that. I don't think Christ enjoyed dying. <laughs> so if we're going to use Christ as the example of our, how we should humble ourselves, we also have to use Christ's death and that pain and that suffering as an example of what we should be willing to go through so that we can be partners in the gospel. Thanks, y'all. We'll go into the rest of chapter 2 next week.